Thank you, Ted. Good morning, everyone. Um, if you're a kid and you're headed to Gospel Project, feel free to go now. And everybody else, as Tad prayed, will be in the Gospel of John. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you could turn with me there to John chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, there should be one under the seat in front of you. Feel free to take that and look up to page uh, 517, 517 in those chair Bibles is where we'll be in John chapter 1. If you're new with us, welcome. Thrilled that you've chosen to try out Church on Mill today. Uh, we believe as a church family that the Bible is the very words of God. So what we do when we get together is we sing the Bible, we pray the Bible, we visit with one another about the Bible. And then we open the Bible and try to read just the next section in the book we're going through and talk plainly about what it means. So that's what my privilege to do with you today is. Tanyan is a college student here at ASU. <laughs> Junior? Yes. Yes. All right. Tanyan, would you read for us John 1, starting in verse 19? And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. He asked them, then why are you baptizing if you were neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Thank you, brother. Appreciate you wearing sandals to be in character. If you don't, if you're a college student, don't know Tanyan, uh, he'd be a great guy to get to know. Uh, we count it a real privilege as a church to be located where we are and think of uh, all the students as a real critical part of the life of our church. So thank you, Tanyan. Uh, juries are enormously important in American society. If you are on trial for a crime, hopefully that's not in your future, but if you are, then your fate lies in a jury of your peers. Juries are supposed to make their decisions based on 
evidence. And many times that evidence comes down to the credibility of eyewitness testimony. Today, you didn't know it when you came, but you, as you sit here in Church on Mill, are on a jury. You're serving on the jury of the most important trial in the history of humanity. Jesus Christ is charged with being eternal God. Jesus claimed for himself to be a man who lived a life of complete obedience, who died a sacrificial death, and who rose again from the dead in victory. And his claim is, particularly as we see in this book, the Gospel of John, that if you believe in him, if you trust him, then you'll be given eternal life. And if you reject him, then you'll spend forever without God. The author of this book we're studying together, John, is Jesus' attorney, if you will. Last week, we looked at the first 18 verses in which John told us Jesus is who he claimed to be. In our text for today that Tanyan just read, we heard from another John, oddly enough. This one is John the Baptist. Now, it's rather fitting today that we would have lots of Johns in the Bible as we finally have new Johns in the back. Lots of new bathrooms. Come on, I thought that was pretty clever. We've gone from four Johns in the back to 12. This is amazing. Katina is happy. Now, John, the author of this book, is today going to call his first witness, actually his expert witness, a man named John the Baptist. Your role this morning as a member of the jury is to decide for yourself. Is Jesus who he says he is? Is Jesus the eternal God who became man, who lived a perfect life and died and rose again? Or is he a liar and you're just wasting your time this morning? Nobody else can decide that for you except you. But don't do so without careful thought. Listen this morning to the evidence John the Baptist will raise. Because he claims not to speak for himself, but for God. Ask whether his testimony is true. Do your homework before you make a decision. Now, John the Baptist had a most unusual background. There are some passages of Scripture that we open and their power and applicability is readily evident to us. This isn't one of them. But would you bear with me for the next 30 minutes or so? Let me try to show you some great truths that are hidden, if you will, that are got to be mined a bit in this passage. So first, a little bit of background about this guy named John the Baptist. From another biography of Jesus, the one before the book of John, is a book called Luke. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in your Bibles are all biographies of this guy named Jesus. And in Luke, we learn quite a bit about John's background. John was born to two parents named Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah was a priest, so he was a spiritual leader from the Old Testament time period. And his wife, Elizabeth, 
was old and had yet to have children. Now, kids in the Bible aren't thought of the way many today think of kids. Kids sometimes today are annoyances. They're in the way. They're something to avoid. But in the worldview of the Bible, kids are a blessing. They're a gift from God. They're a sign of His favor to a husband and a wife. So much so that if you were married and you didn't have kids, then it was common that people would question, what's wrong with you? Why is God judging you? I'm not at all saying that's the right thought process, but that was present. So here was this spiritual leader without a kid. Imagine all the about him and about his wife. But miraculously, late in life, God gave them a son. And not just any son. This son was to be the one who would go forward before Jesus and prepare people for his coming. God miraculously intervened and gave them this child. You can read that story, and I encourage you to, in Luke 1 and 2. John had the most unusual of backgrounds. But he had an even more unusual life. You see, his life wasn't about him. His life was about somebody else. His name is Jesus. And he was commissioned by God to smooth out the way, if you would, for people to hear and see Jesus. And he was to do this by preaching a message of repentance, calling people to turn from their sin and to turn to God, and then to demonstrate that they meant it by getting baptized in the Jordan River. Now, what's unusual about this is no one had come with a message like this for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. From the close of your Old Testament book of Malachi to the arrival of John the Baptist spans a time frame of a little over 400 years in which there had been no new message from God. I've got to understand something of the Old Testament Jewish expectation in order to understand the power of this moment. Those books, Genesis through Malachi, are filled with pregnant promises of God saying He would intervene. Of God saying he would rescue his people. God promised that one day he would bring his kingdom and make people right with God. He promised a divine deliverer. He promised freedom in life. He promised that one day he would gather people from all of the world to know him and worship him. He promised never-ending peace. He promised justice over God's enemies and harmony among people whom ought not to get along. Doesn't that sound good? And so, many Jews had been born and heard this message by gathering in the synagogues and having their parents tell them the message, and yet they lived their entire lives hearing the story, praying for this rescuer to come and dying without seeing the fulfillment. 
the distance between what God had promised and what the Jews of the first century were living was enormous. Have you been there? There is what God seems to say God's going to do and your actual daily existence. Sometimes it feels like there's a grand canyon between us. If you're in one of those moments today, I hope you'll hear John out as John announces the way through which that chasm can be crossed. But there's all this bent-up, pregnant promises. There's a yearning and a longing for God to stay true to what He said He would do. And then all of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, comes this weirdo named John the Baptist. And he stands out in the middle of the desert and he preaches not a light, fluffy, easy message. He preaches a message of repentance. And it seems the more aggressive he got, the bigger the crowds became. People came in droves to hear him, traveling miles and miles and miles, not in their cars, but on foot in the desert, to hear John. Could this be the promised deliverer? Is God finally keeping His promise now? Now, If you know anything about John, you'll know he's a bit of a freak. And that sort of helped raise the level of expectation that maybe this was the promised Messiah. It begins this passage by telling us about John's testimony. And it ends by showing us that he was a witness for Christ. When you're reading the Bible, there are some texts in which the message is plain. It's, it's evident. Just read it once and you'll see exactly what it's talking about. There's others that require more work. You're not actually supposed to turn your brain off when you read the Bible, but to use it This is one of those texts that requires some work. This passage is about John serving as a witness for Jesus. It's not about John and how great John was. How do we know that? Well, the passage starts by saying John is a witness or John has a testimony about Jesus. And then it ends by saying this is the witness of John. It's like a sandwich, if you would. There's some stuff in the middle, but the buns are what hold it all together. This passage is about John being the witness. And so John is on the stand. You are the the jury. Before we hear his words, we ought to consider, is he a credible witness? We've all watched enough TV shows to know that The message or the testimony that somebody gives on the stand is only as good as their credibility. And so is John the Baptist credible? Is he a guy worth listening to? Well, here are three reasons why you should see him as a credible witness. Number one, John the Baptist speaks as a man who knew Jesus. He lived at the same time. They were contemporaries. He interacted with him. 
He didn't hear something and got passed down 10 people. He knew him himself. So he's an eyewitness. An eyewitness testimony is the best kind of testimony there is. Second, notice very clearly in this passage, John doesn't claim to speak for himself. He says, God told me this. God said that Jesus is who he says he is. Now, you can dismiss that if you want, but first, I'd have to ask you, why? Why not take John at his word? Why come to the text with a suspicion, with doubt? Why not trust? And then third, from Luke. So, another biography we mentioned earlier. Luke says that Jesus said, among one born to man and woman, There has been no one greater than John. So Jesus had a very high view of John. Jesus said, he's a great guy. You ought to listen to him. John the Baptist is a credible witness. But maybe you got drug here this morning and you don't believe any of that. Now, I'm not asking you to raise your hand, but hopefully there's some here that aren't so sure. So let's set those reasons aside and let me give you one more. Look at the life of John. Look at his life. What do we see about him as a person in this text? John the Baptist was enormously popular. Today we might say that his Twitter and his Instagram were just blowing up. Everyone was coming out to hear him preach. Everyone. Fame surrounded him. The more he talked, the more people came. And it didn't seem to matter how confrontational he was. The crowds kept coming. Now, how does he handle that? Did you notice? John says, don't don't look to me, look to Jesus. Jesus. I'm nothing. Jesus is everything. I'm just a witness. Jesus is the substance. Now, let's be honest. That's rather odd. We, as human beings, are not hardwired to take accolades and deflect them to others. And men in particular, I am one, so don't get offended at me, guys. I can speak on our behalf. We're not particularly good at pointing attention away from ourselves to others. How often have you ever heard a man say, don't look to me, look to him? But that's what John does. There's no hint of jealousy in this incredible man. There's no hint of envy. There's no hint that he wanted to maintain the fame for himself. Instead, he selfishly rejects attention and instead exalts Jesus. And so I just ask you to consider why. Why would someone whose Twitter is getting bigger and bigger and bigger be pushing his followers out, away from himself, to somebody else? Well, friends, the reality of this life 
John's life makes plain the accuracy of his testimony. Because this isn't what people do. It gives credibility to the message that he shares. So is he somebody to listen to? By all means, yes. And so now John is on the stand. And the attorney, the other John, has stood up. And he's asked the first question. Who do you say Jesus is? Well, the passage we read tells us. John says that Jesus is the Lamb of God in verse 29. And Jesus is the Son of God in verse 34. That, in summary fashion, is what John's entire testimony about Jesus consisted of. This one is the Lamb of God, and this one is the Son of God. Well, that clears it all up. Not really. So let's spend a few minutes together trying to work through that. Many times in the coming months, we will encounter this title for Jesus, Son of God. And so we're going to have lots of opportunities together to look at what that one means. But the other one doesn't come up as often. In fact, only a few times. And so I want to focus in there with you this morning. Jesus as the Lamb of God. That song we sung, the last one together this morning, was just that. Worthy is the Lamb. Now, what does that mean? Well, look at verse 29. The next day, he, this is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What does it mean to be the Lamb of God? Well, it means that Jesus took on flesh in order that he could take away sin. Jesus took on flesh in order that he could take away sin. But again, we're so far culturally removed from this first century setting, so that's not entirely clear. Let me try to put it a different way. Jesus as the Lamb of God means that Jesus is the solution to your deepest problem. Your most pressing need is to have your sin taken away. And Jesus is the solution. You see, the greatest problem of every human being is not what our parents did or didn't do. Our greatest problem is not our health or our education or our lack of money. It's not that our self-esteem is too low or that the presence of suffering is too high. It's not the absence of a spouse or the presence of the wrong one. You see, the greatest obstacle you and I face in life is not external. It's not out beyond us. It's internal. You see, people were made to worship and enjoy God. That's why we exist. But we can't. And we don't. We're all separated from God and under His just wrath. Because we've willfully rejected his good rule. We are hostile to God, both by nature and by choice. Sure, we clean ourselves up well and act nicely, 
But inside, there's a sickness that we can't resolve. Apart from God's intervention, we are all hopeless and headed for hell. John the Baptist's testimony on the witness stand is that Jesus is the solution to this most perplexing and terrible of all problems. When he calls Jesus the Lamb of God, he means that Jesus offered himself in place of all of God's people. You see, as one without sin, as one who obeyed the Father in every way, Jesus was able to offer himself in our place. He was able to bear the full weight of the wrath and judgment of God so that you don't have to. So you see, Christian, brother and sister, if Jesus is your Lamb of God, then there is no more wrath of God left for you. It has all been poured out on the Son, on Jesus. Hello? That's good news. That means no matter who you are or what you've done, no matter how wretched that thing you're going to do in the future is that you don't even know about yet, Jesus has taken all of God's wrath. You see, the Father's dispensation, His, his attitude, His entire orientation to you, Christian, is that you're in Christ and Christ is in you. You are a beloved child of the King. Completely irrespective of anything you've done. Completely because of what Jesus has done. You're not a shouting people, but that is shout-worthy. That's incredible news. Now, when John saw Jesus and he yelled, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That might raise a question in your mind. How could John have said that when it hadn't yet happened? In other words, this is somewhere around the year 30 A.D. or C.E., And it wasn't until somewhere around the year 33 that Jesus died. And so how is it that John looked at Jesus and called him already the Lamb of God? Are you with me? These are the questions nerds ask. So humor me for just a minute. How is it that John would pronounce Jesus to be the Lamb of God before he had taken on the posture of being a substitutionary sacrifice? Well, in one sense, it's simply because God told him. You see, John was a prophet. He was someone who had a special authority that no longer exists. It was someone especially commissioned by God to speak on God's behalf, such that as John was listening to God and speaking, then he was the very mouthpiece of God. Today, the Bible has that function. But this was in the process of it being written. And so in one sense, it's simply John could say, there's the Lamb of God because Jesus told him, because God told him Jesus is the Lamb of God. But in another sense, 
It's because of what John knew to be true throughout the Old Testament. See, all over those first books of your Bible is something really strange. There's these occurrences in which lambs are talked about. If you were an Old Testament follower of God and you sinned, then you would go to the priest and you would slit the throat of a lamb and his blood would pour out. I realize that's nasty and old and a long time ago. But that doesn't mean it didn't happen. And as that throat was slit and the lamb died, you were given this graphic picture that sin requires death. That the justice of God is only met as the wrath of God brings about death. And so God in His kindness in this period of time in history would look upon these lambs as a substitute for the sinner. And so for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, this is what happened. And yet it all pointed forward to the true lamb, Jesus. And so what seems so strange to us would have just been normal, commonplace to John, that John would have understood Ultimately, there would be a, not an animal, but the God-man, Jesus Christ, dying in place of sinners. But even more than that, I think when John saw Jesus and he said, this is the Lamb of God, that what was forefront, what was first in his mind was a prophecy about Jesus. That didn't happen in the year 30, didn't happen the year zero. It happened over 700 years earlier. God had sent another prophet, a man named Isaiah. And Isaiah said this would happen. This would take place. Surely he, this was a forward-looking prophecy about Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to slaughter, like a sheep that, that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for this generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. John knew Jesus to be the Lamb of God because the Bible told him long before it ever happened 
that the Lamb of God would come. Now remember, you're on a jury. You're supposed to look at the evidence. You're supposed to not make a decision based on preconceived notions and opinions. So I just ask you, how do you explain that? 700 years before Jesus. In shocking detail, we're told what would happen. I imagine John, the attorney at this moment, as John the Baptist utters these words, would have stepped back from the bench and he would say, this is massive corroborating evidence. But it's not just John the Baptist. It's folks long, long, long before said this is what would take place. So this is John's answer to the question, who is Jesus? But before John the Baptist gets off the witness stand, he's asked one more question. What effect did Jesus have on your life? What difference did he make? Friend, when the reality of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done comes to bear on you, then you gain a particular view of yourself and you gain a particular view of Jesus. We see this so clearly in John's life. We don't have long, so just give me a few more minutes to show you this. First, you gain a particular view of yourself. In light of who Jesus is, John's testimony was, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. Now, he says it in a a culturally relevant way that's a bit removed from us. You may have noticed that section that talked about, I'm not unworthy, I'm I'm unworthy to untie his sandals. That's weird, isn't it? But here's the context. In the first century, you walked nearly everywhere you went. You wore sandals. The streets, the roads were made of dirt. Animals and people alike used them. I don't have to go any more detail, do I? Your feet were disgusting. Your feet are disgusting. And so, when you go to a guest's house, what would happen? Well, there would be a slave who, as you would walk in, would have the most menial of tasks. Be wash your feet. John says, so much greater than me is Jesus. I'm not even fit to untie his sandals. You see, John had a particular view of himself. He understood himself to be a sinner in need of a Savior, to be one much, much, much less than Jesus Christ. 
had a particular view of Jesus too. He said, I'm not worthy, but Jesus, Jesus is worthy. Jesus is the spotless Lamb of God. He takes away sin. He's the Son of God. He's everything. So concurrent with this low view of himself was an extremely high view of Jesus. Friends, that's what you and I need. We need an, an appropriate perspective on us and a realistic perspective on Jesus. Now what happens when you get that? Well, you gain a joyful humility and an unshakable boldness in witnessing. You see, far from beating us down, when we see who we really are and when we see who Jesus really is, then we begin to live a life of joy. Because we're not created for life to be about us. We can't bear the weight of being in charge, of being the most important. Timothy Keller, a pastor and author, calls this the freedom of self-forgetfulness. I love that phrase. That there's a freedom in thinking not less of myself, but in thinking of myself less often and gaining a, a right view of me and a right view of him. Popular wisdom today says that the way to a meaningful life is to focus on yourself, to try to gain what you want, when you want it, to focus on how you feel and what's on the inside. But John the Baptist's life stands in sharp contrast. He says life, joy, meaning, peace are not found in here, but up there. So let me ask three crucial questions as we wrap up this morning. First, and by far most important, has the Lamb of God taken away your sin? God wants you to know. This isn't something He wants you fretting at night, wringing your hands in an anguish over. You can objectively know. Friend, all sin, every good thing you have turned into an ultimate thing, every rebellious act, everyone, will only be addressed in one of two places. It'll either be dealt with by Jesus, the Lamb of God, dying in place of you, or in your death and judgment. That's it. God has created the world and maintains it in such a way that there will be perfect justice. And I recognize it does not look like it today. There is much injustice in the world. But that will not last forever. And so do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe John's testimony? Do you believe Jesus left heaven, came to earth, 
became a man, lived a life of perfect obedience before the Father, and then freely, generously offered himself as a substitute for sin. And then because that was acceptable to God, then he was resurrected to a whole new life. And that life is now offered to you. Friend, if you believe that, and if you put your trust in him, then Jesus is in fact your lamb. And that means there's no more wrath. This is the most important question you will ever consider. It may be that you're here today and you're undecided. Thank you for listening. Thank you for hearing me out. Would you consider asking whoever you came with or making a new friend here? Or coming up afterwards and asking a leader, I'm not so sure about all this, but I want to look at the evidence. Would you meet up with me and read through this book of John and let's continue to talk? Christians believe we ought to look plainly at what God has said and done and that the evidence can stand for itself, that your questions have answers. So if you're not yet convinced, we would love the privilege of walking side by side with you. But only you can decide. Now, second question, would your friends and family and community describe you as humble yet bold? Is, is there a freedom, a humility, a self-forgetfulness about you coupled with an incredible boldness and love? and the mission of sharing Christ. Friend, can you think of opportunities recently in which it's been clear that God was giving you a moment to offer a kind help to someone? And in particular, moments in which it was obvious that an open door was presented through which you could say a little something about Jesus. Did you take it? Were you ashamed of the gospel? Did you cower in fear? Or did you boldly proclaim who he is? Friend, I said earlier, there's no more wrath of God left for you. That's true even of that moment. And so, would you ask God if you've not had this mixture of humility and boldness to reinvigorate your passion for Him. The Holy Spirit was given to you in large part that you might have courage and boldness in sharing the gospel. And so the power to tap into isn't your own strength. It's God Himself. The Lord will bring more opportunities, maybe even in the coming Day. Finally, we can ask the same question of us as a community. Would, would our friends, would our families, would our community call us as a church to be humble and bold? 
Are we known to be a gentle, loving, kind, generous, winsome people? Are we known to be a people who speak often not of ourselves, but of Jesus? If not, may we together ask God to help us as a church be about Him, not about ourselves. The author of this book in the Bible, John, has called his expert witness, John the Baptist, John the Baptist says, this indeed is the Lamb of God and the Son of God. Who do you say he is? Let's pray. Before I lead us in prayer, I encourage you to spend just a couple of moments quietly reflecting yourself. Father, thank you that life's most important question, who is Jesus, isn't left up to our whimsical fantasies, that you have chosen to clearly, without question, lay out before us, this is who Jesus is. So I pray today for anyone here today that's not yet persuaded, that isn't yet convinced, who hasn't placed trust in God. Father, would you use your word and your people to make yourself known? I pray that they would have the courage to ask somebody to walk on a journey with them, the journey of considering the question, who is Jesus? And to look at the evidence, to consider the alternatives. For Father, we believe that you have spoken, that your word is true, and that Jesus came in space, time, history, that Christianity is the, the stuff not of wishful thinking, but of objective truth. So I pray for my friends here who are not yet Christians and Pray that they would seriously consider the evidence of who Jesus is. 
pray also for brothers and sisters, those here in the room who have bended the knee and trusted in Christ. God, maybe like me, they can think of times recently where the, the fear of people has been greater than the love of God. And we together, both individually and collectively, would say we repent of the sin of speaking of you less often than you present us opportunity. And pray that increasingly our lives would reflect what John's did, a, a humility and a boldness. And that God, as we spill out of this room in just a few minutes, we would go with hearts reinvigorated by the truth that the Lamb of God has taken away our sin and we've got to tell others. And help us to see the opportunities that you present to us. Father, thank you that we are not left under your just wrath, but we are set free in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.